Good morning, church. As you can see, we're starting a new series this morning. We spent the summer going through the Psalms, and this morning we're starting a series this fall working through the book of Hebrews. And it's kind of an odd letter because we're not entirely sure who wrote it. Uh, Unlike the other letters in the New Testament, it doesn't specify who the author of the letter is. Uh, it's, It's a slightly different writing style from how Paul wrote to the churches. And so there have been scholars that have thought that, well, it could be uh, Barnabas or possibly even Luke uh, or even people that we don't have as authors in our Bible, such as Clement or Apollos. Um, But there's not enough proof to actually specify who the author is. And so for us as believers today, the safest answer is to say, well, we're just not sure who wrote it. But whoever wrote this letter, the church has has agreed that this letter fits in with the theme of Scripture as a whole. And so even though we don't know who the author is, they're still communicating the truth about who this God is. We're also not sure entirely who the letter was written to, such as the The book of Ephesians is a letter written to the church in Ephesus. The letter to the Romans is to the church in Rome. There there are specifications in other letters that say who they're addressed to. Um, This just says that it is for the Hebrews. And so it's most likely for Jewish converts to Christianity. But outside of that, we have very little information. At the end of the letter, it actually says, those from Italy send their greetings. Now, it could be people that have left Italy, uh, and so they're, they're sending their greetings back to, to Italy itself. Or maybe uh, this is being written while in Italy, and believers from outside are, are sending their greetings. But either way, it, there's no specification of who this letter is for outside of that it is written to the Hebrews, but these are Hebrew believers. Also, unlike the other letters of our New Testament, uh, it doesn't exactly follow the traditional uh, Greek letter writing structure. In fact, this, this letter is more of a collection of brief sermonettes. There are several many sermons contained within this letter uh, But within those sermons, there are direct instructions for unnamed believers wherever this letter was going to. And so whoever wrote it knew the recipients of the the letter and knew them intimately and loved them. However, the letter does end with the traditional letter ending in exhortations and greetings. and, uh, And so it's completely unlike any other letter in our New Testament But what we do know is that the theme of the letter is better and greater. That's that's the overall theme. In fact, uh, there's a theologian named uh, Donald Guthrie, and he says that this is the real theme of the whole letter. The past has given way to better things. And so the entire theme of the book of Hebrews is there were good things in the past, but God has now given us better things. 
And so the audience has experienced faith through the ways of the past, and those things weren't bad. They were good. But now it's even better. For example, when I was a kid, I remember distinctly growing up with one of the most wonderful things that I knew in creation at that time, and it was known as the Atari 2600. And it was beautiful. It had that, that awkward square joystick with the one button, and, uh, and, and I loved playing. I had to write, get some games down because I knew I would forget. But games like Pong and Battle Tanks and Pitfall, and you're trying to maneuver with this awkward square joystick and one button, and, and I wasn't that good, but I loved it. And looking back, it's not that great, but at the time, it was good, and and throughout the years, good kept getting better because it went from the Atari to the Nintendo to the Sega Genesis and, and so on and so on until today, I, I get to play video games with my own kids on our Xbox at home. And even to the point where we actually have phones that are computers in our pockets that are stronger than the entire computer system that we had growing up that took up the entire top of your desk. The things that we once had were good, but it's gotten better. And on a much grander scale, this is a very pale comparison, but God continually revealed more and more of Himself throughout His covenant. And then He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, And so each revelation within the covenant was good as God revealed more and more of Himself. But the coming of Jesus Christ was better. And looking at Hebrews 1, I would actually argue that the main point of what we're looking at this morning is that every person can personally know God through Jesus not just as a philosophy or a concept, but that God can be personally known. And the author unpacks this in three ways. First, how God spoke. And we see that in verse 1. How God spoke. Secondly, the second point is who God sent. So we look at how God spoke, and the second point is who God sent. In verses 2 through 13. And then lastly, in the final verse, 14, why this matters. So before I go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, we thank you that you are a God who communicates to your people. And as we sit here and rest in your word and look at what your word has to say to us today, God, we pray that you would pour out your spirit in this place, that we would submit our hearts and our wills to your word, that you would speak your gospel truth to us, and we would see just the glory of who you are. Speak through me, be with us now. Show us your glory. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, in the opening of the letter to the Hebrews, uh, in order to get to the importance of who 
Christ is, the author has to begin with what took place before. And so namely, he's unpacking how God spoke. In verse 1, the author writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And it's funny because when I read this, the first thing that pops into my head is that it kind of reminds me of middle school crushes. Because when you're in middle school and you like that certain someone, you start off by sending out a representative. It's like, okay, I like Susie, but I need you to go and find out. So, Billy, I need you to go and talk to Susie's best friend, Jane. And sorry, Billy, you were just the first name that came to mind. But Billy, I need you to go and talk to Jane, who's best friends with Susie, to find out if Susie likes me, or and she's, if she's told Jane about it, and then report back to me. So with a crush, you have to send a representative out to test the water first. And then, if it seems safe, then there's the ever-important note. Do you like me? Check yes or no. And then there's always the cold-hearted maybe that's written in when it gets sent back to you. But then, e- even then, middle schoolers are, are too young to date. They can't go off on dates or things like that. So most of the relationship is spent passing notes or, in, in today's culture, just texting each other back and forth uh, in various forms of social media. So parents, make sure that you know what your kids are using on their phones. So that's just a, a brief side note. But, but communication is important to getting to know that other person, and there are forms of how that communication takes place. And on a much grander scale, God spoke to His people throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, often through sending a representative. Some of the ways that He spoke to His people, uh, he, he used visions and dreams, thinking of Joseph in Genesis Uh, or or Daniel in the book of Daniel, the way that God used dreams and visions to communicate His truth. Sometimes there would be angelic revelations that God would send angels to communicate to His people. Like when Abraham is greeted by the the three angels in in Genesis 18, and he's told that he's going to have a child in his later years. Or in Joshua 5, when Joshua is greeted by the commander of the Lord's armies and says, are you for me or for my enemy? And the angel says, neither. I'm for God. God would speak to his people through angels. Or he would speak through his people, uh, he would speak to his people through the prophets, such as Moses or Elijah or Jonah. And the prophets would often start the same way, thus saith Yahweh, thus says the Lord. This is not my words, but this is what God has to say to his covenant people. There was still a relationship. There was this holy God who brought an entire nation of people to himself through a covenant that God himself initiated. But there was still a sense of separation because God would speak to His people through a mediator. God would communicate to His chosen person, His prophet, His mouthpiece, and then that mouthpiece would speak 
to the people. But Old Testament history centered on waiting for this Messiah to come. Waiting for the Redeemer to come to make this broken relationship right. The broken relationship between this covenant Creator God and His people. And so the nation of Israel waited and longed for this Redeemer Messiah to come. But they didn't expect Jesus Even in Jesus' time, people were asking if He was Elijah who would come back. Because people were still expecting the return of a mediator. They wanted someone like Elijah or Moses to come and continue that role of being the mouthpiece for God's people. They wanted to continue the tradition of what they knew. And so instead... The author of Hebrews unpacks who God sent. Picking up in verse 2. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. These last days is not referring to some kind of end times prophecy, but He's saying that in recent times, look, we've looked back at how God spoke in the, throughout the Old Testament But in recent time, God spoke to His people by sending His own Son. And notice the importance of that distinction. God isn't using visions or dreams. He's not using angelic messengers, which He gets into unpacking very soon. But He's not even speaking through a prophet. He sent, God sent His own Son. So instead of a prophet saying, thus saith the Lord, the Son Himself has, had come and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And notice the qualifications that He lists for the Son. That He is the heir of all things. That everything belongs to the Son. And through whom God created the world. That Creation itself exists by God the Father and God the Son working together to create. And the Son of God inherits the very world that He helped create. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God. That the glory that is emitted from the Father like the light and heat from a fire is seen in the Son. The glory of God Himself, of the, the glory of the Father is seen in the Son. And He is the exact imprint of His nature. That the nature and glory and holiness and justice and righteousness and everything that they knew about God the Father is contained within the Son. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. 
in the same way that God spoke and His words brought life and reality into existence, the Son is holding that creation together by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, which He doesn't go into detail at this point of the letter, But part of the qualification of the Son is that He purifies God's people. And when He had finished that, He sits down at the right hand of the Father. A position of power and authority. And He's seated because His work is done until He returns. The only other time Scripture lists Jesus Christ as standing next to the Father is when He is watching Stephen get stoned in Acts chapter 6. But he's seated at the right hand of the Father because the work that he came to do has been done. He's not in the middle of a process. Until he comes again, his redemptive work here at this time is done. And so he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so after listening to this impressive resume, he goes on to contrast how this son is superior to the angels. In verse 4, he says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That the, the very name of the son himself is superior to the authority and the power of the angels. In verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. At this point, the author, knowing that his his audience is familiar, not just familiar with our Old Testament, but that they know these things by heart. They're familiar with the law and the prophets and the, the poetry of what we call our Old Testament. The author of the letter to the Hebrews just starts rattling off Old Testament scriptures to verify who this son is and why he is superior to the angels. And so he quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Saying that there has never been a time in in created history where God says, you know what, I like this angel so much, I'm going to make that angel my son. And he goes on in the second half of verse 5. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Taken from 2 Samuel 7, 14. Again, that there is no time that God has ever called a created angel His child. In verse 6, which is taken from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, the author writes, and again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, and here's the quote, let all God's angels worship Him. That the Son Himself is in such a position that the created angelic beings are designed to worship and give glory to the Son. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, He makes the angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. This is taken from Psalm 104, verse 4, that the, the angels are made to be powerful and majestic. And, and oftentimes, actually every time, whenever you see angels speaking to people throughout Scripture, they always begin with, do not fear, because they are terrifying 
to our comprehension and our understanding. They are more majestic than what we have seen. The angels are created in beauty and majesty. But they are not as glorious of the sun. The author continues, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's quoted from Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. And he goes on to quote Psalm 102, 25 through 27. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The throne of the sun is eternal and righteous, that the angels themselves were created uh, as, as heavenly beings, but the, the, throne, the Son Himself sits upon an eternal throne to rule in sovereign righteousness, that the Son is the Creator. And even though creation itself will one day perish and fade away, the Creator Himself will never fade or diminish. And then in verse 13, And to which of the angels has He, meaning God, ever said, Sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this is taken from Psalm 110, verse 1. That the angels were created in majesty and glory, and they have heavenly power, but they do not have the power of the sun. They do not sit in authority like the sun sits at the right hand of God. The author knows that his audience is familiar with the law, the prophets, and the poetry. And he uses this. He uses their knowledge and their familiarity with, their, with these Scriptures, with their traditions. And he says, look at what you already know. The Son is greater. The angels have always been heavenly messengers to deliver words from God to His people. But the Son is God in the flesh. The Son is the one who helped create reality, the, uh, the, to create the world, the, the land and the air and the sea and creatures and people, all made through the Son. And He is the one who inherits what has been created. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature that His Word holds creation together. And that He is the one who purifies God's people and sits at the right hand of God the Father. 
And so this gets to the final point. Why does this matter? Why begin a letter unpacking the contrast of the angels to the sun? And this matters because as long as God used messengers and angels and prophets to deliver His Word, that there would always be distance and a disconnect between Him and His people. He covenanted Himself to His people. But as long as there is a mediator, there is still a distance between the Creator and creation. And so God steps into creation itself. As God the Son steps into creation. When Jesus is giving the Good Shepherd discourse in John chapter 10, He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then in John 14, after Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through Me, the conversation picks up in in 14 verses 8 through 11 when Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. The importance of Jesus coming, the Son coming into creation, is that He's not just another messenger, but He and the Father are one, that God has stepped into creation itself. And Christ came because angels could never redeem that broken relationship. Ever since Adam and Eve, man has been trapped in sin. You are born into sin. You could never do enough to earn righteousness. You can't do enough nice things. You can't say enough nice things. You can't go to enough Bible studies. You can't serve enough. You can't tithe enough. And messengers from God could never atone for the weight of your sin The prophets and the angels can challenge God's people to repent, but they could never pay the penalty for your sin. And so since your sin distanced you from an infinite God, the only way to restore that broken relationship is for the infinite God to step into the finite world to redeem you and to pay your debt. And just like a, a, a classic Billy Mays infomercial, it's, there's this moment of, but wait, there's more! Because the author finishes the chapter with verse 14. 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That you also, you inherit salvation, but you are made co-heirs with Christ. You are brought into this intimate familial relationship with God, that it's no longer just that your debt has been paid, but you are brought into relationship. Look at what Paul writes or wrote in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Where the prophets and the angels could never pay the penalty for sin, the Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself, steps into creation. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of, his, of God's nature, born of a woman, to take your sinful status upon Himself, to give you His righteousness, so you may be called a child of God. For those of you who cling to the name of Christ, God doesn't look at you as an ex-sinner. God doesn't look at you and say, oh, I wish he'd get his act together. God doesn't look at you and say, I really wish she was more faithful. God looks at you and sees his son and the redemption that Christ paid for you. This God who used to speak through dreams and prophets and angels steps into creation to make Himself known and sent His Son to redeem you and call you His child. And so you are not alone in creation. In fear and doubt and anxiety, you have not been abandoned with uh, a potential hurricane bearing down on us in a uh, cultural climate where it seems like our media is trying to pit people one against another. You either, you either stand for this or you are against this and you should be arguing with each other. We live in a world where we are biting and snapping at each other. But you have not been abandoned. You are not a cosmic accident. That you are made by a God who makes himself known. And so, Christian, find comfort that God has not created you and left you alone to figure this out. But He sent His Son on your behalf so that you can find peace and rest as a child of the living, eternal God. And so if you're, if you're here this morning and you feel that God is distant, that you don't know what it's like to have a relationship with this God who makes himself known, I encourage you, ask questions, wrestle with your doubt, 
Because I am confident that this eternal God has made Himself known through His Son. And we know His Son through the written Word. This God of creation stepped in to redeem you and all of His people to take away sin and to see you as His child. Something that no messenger could ever do. And so I challenge you, will you chase after creation itself, hoping and longing for a chance to connect with some sort of a higher power? Or will you trust and follow in the Son, Jesus Christ, who came to redeem your broken relationship with a God who makes Himself known? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess that far too often we chase after the created things of this world as a mediator to hoping and praying that we will find some way to know You better. God, we chase after stuff and philosophies and people themselves They will never satisfy. And so, God, we confess that we need You. We need need Your Son. God, we thank You that You sent Jesus Christ to step into creation to redeem us and to, to restore what had been broken. And God, I pray that we would hope and trust and follow Him alone. Let us rest knowing Not just that you've made yourself known to us, but that you call us your child through the work of this Jesus. And it's in his holy name we pray. Amen.